Imagine watching live on an app on your phone as strangers, intruders, enter your home while your child is home alone. Also on the child safety front, reports of online sexual luring of Canadian kids has gone up 815% in the last five years. This according to cybertip.ca. They joined us to break that down. There's a rather tricky photo radar situation at the South Perimeter in St. Mary's and St. Norbert City Councillor Marcus Chambers wants the province to make some changes to make it easier for people to get through there without getting dinged for photo radar. And have you ever heard of emetophobia? We had some fun today talking about the weird things that scare us. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, February 7th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And uh, difficult to avoid the images, the video, the sounds of the just a terrible, horrifying situation in uh, Turkey and Syria, Greg. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely, obviously incredibly sad devastation when you see and realize how quickly life can change for certain people, for all of us, really. It's a reminder that life can change in an instant. And they're seeing that in, in South Central Turkey right now in the Hatay uh, region of that country near Syria. I haven't seen too many images out of Syria, Loren, but Turkey, uh, this uh, part of Turkey, is about a million, a million six hundred thousand people. So think of a city roughly the size of Calgary. Uh, some of the high rises that have been, have collapsed altogether, or even just the first two or three floors, and they're sitting, leaning on edge. The main runway at the airport has this massive buckle in it, so that's going to apparently complicate a situation in terms of getting in relief, uh, whether it be workers, equipment, etc. It's it's absolutely devastation. And uh, oh boy, oh boy, my, my heart uh, goes out to anyone who's uh, dealing with that, anyone who has family, relatives, friends uh, in that part of the world right now. Yeah, and you look at some of those images that are coming out and you'll have a building that's completely flattened and the next to it one's standing and then the next one's flattened and it's just sort of the the randomness that it feels as it happens and and the crowds of people standing around these huge piles as digging is underway, just hoping without hope that someone can be pulled from that rubble alive. And you mentioned not seeing much out of Syria yet. Well, part of the problem there, you know, the UN is calling it a crisis within a crisis, right? Because Syria's gone through more than a decade of civil war crippled by infrastructure damage, bombings upon bombings, and then you have an earthquake that's hit, you know, largely the Aleppo, Latakia, Tardis region. So in Syria, I don't know if we'll see, get the full picture there for days yet. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's additionally scary because you look at this death toll right now that sits at around 5,000 people, you know, started off just a few hundred yesterday, then it went to 1,500, then 2,000. And you know that's going to climb, particularly if it's true that we really don't have a real sense of what might be happening in Syria. So it's a story we're going to continue to watch. And of course, we've had so welcome so many Syrian refugees to our city over the past few years that you know there are going to be people here that are struggling to get information out of their home. And then, of course, people who will be looking to help. So we'll have a lot more on this throughout the day. And you can read much more at cjob.com, including what's the science behind the Turkey-Syria earthquake's severity. Um, But also today we are going to continue 
our series that we launched yesterday on aging and aging in place. Richard Cloutier at 835 is going to bring us a story about a woman whose goal is to stay in her home until she's at least 100. So I'm excited to hear this story because we got so much great feedback yesterday and we appreciate all of it. On uh, the We had an interview at 9.35 with a man, Manitoba man, faced with the difficult situation of having his parents in separate care homes on opposite ends of the city, Mackling. Yeah, it's a huge challenge for uh, a large portion of our population. And to recognize uh, those challenges, I think, is critical. Uh, the barriers to proper care and also the barriers to staying within your own home. Think of something as simple as, where's your washer and dryer? In your home. My Baba lives on her own. She's in her mid 80s and she has to go up and down, not a very friendly, pedestrian friendly set of stairs to do her laundry. And she spends far too much time doing that up and down these basement stairs. And so, Loren, I have offered several times to, you know, should we move the washer and dryer up to the main floor to make life a little bit easier? She'll have none of it. And uh, just little things like the number of stairs within her home pose a challenge. And I touched on it briefly yesterday, the idea of, you know, having that accessible home, uh, whether your entrance is at ground level or you see a proliferation, a lot more ramps and and maybe even uh, mini lifts, people having installed the front of their house in order to to help people age in place uh, more effectively, more conveniently. Maybe doors need to be a bit bigger. You have Absolutely. folks who walkers. You talk about mobility issues and wheelchairs, and there's all sorts of ways you can stay home if your home is fitted for it. And then another thing I thought of is, well, you know, yes, it's the support system that's around you. It's the home care. But, Brett, what about even just needing to get out once a week to get your groceries or someone bringing those groceries to you? What's handy transit look like these days? What's transit period look like these days if you just even want to go out onto your street, get past the snow, get past the non-snow cleared sidewalk, find the bus, get on the bus? I mean, there's all sorts of challenges. And so, you know, when we talk about building our cities better, think about our aging population and the numbers we're going to see in the next 15 years. And, and are we ready to keep any of them at home in a comfortable manner? Yeah, we see a lot. I mean, just just in this building alone, uh, the number of people accessing the the bank. We've got a bank in Montreal in our building, and when I go downstairs in the morning for a vape, uh, I can't remember what time the bank opens nine thirty or so. But often there are people with walkers, there are people on scooters, people in wheelchairs, and uh, I see it all the time as well in Osborne Village. There's a there's a an older woman who rides around on a scooter and has to ride it on the streets. Right. Separate conversation. Right. Uh, yes. With snow or, stuff. Or but, is it though, right? Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. And that, that's maybe the point is, is the way we're going to look at this. If we don't have the uh, infrastructure with regards to building uh, personal care homes, the money involved, well, the less expensive, the best solution is for people to stay in their homes as long as possible. That involves making sure that that infrastructure outside the home is accessible as well, Brett. That's right. And our question of the day, actually, we just asked a question a couple of days ago regarding whether or not, uh, or have you had the conversation uh, with, you know, either your parents or your caregivers, your old, aging parents or caregivers about whether or not uh, it's time to give up the driver's license and the question of the day. That is on the site now for Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace at 204-832-6243. When it comes to driver testing, should MPI keep things as they are? 61% say yes to that. 22% say retest a person every couple of years after a certain age. And 17% say retest everyone after 10 years. (laughs) 
It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Here is the headline at CJOB.com. Father watches live on phone app as video shows strangers entering home while child is alone. While child is alone. So many people leave their kids at a certain age home alone and they've got maybe different rules. But what happened in this case is that they could watch their child answer the door to a group of complete strangers who then allegedly made their way inside this Toronto home and reportedly robbed the family. And so Global's Karen Lieberman looked into this and said what happened was a notification to their cell phones alerted parents to the incident while it was underway. Around 3.30 Saturday afternoon, security camera footage captured this pair walking up the stairs to a home in North York and opening the screen door. The woman knocks and knocks again. After a couple failed attempts of uh, getting my son's attention, who happened, who happens to be 13 years of age, sure enough, my son answered the door. He was home alone. Hi. The woman can be heard asking if the boy's mother is home, suggesting she told her to come. Video appears to show a sharp tool in the man's hand. With his son at home alone, the homeowner received a notification on an app on his phone connected to the home security system. He saw two people on his doorstep and then he watched as they went inside. We agreed to protect his identity due to safety concerns. I'm watching this and I was horrified of what was happening and what was taking place, how cunning they are. And my wife was at the other end uh, seeing this and uh, she was horrified trying to contact my son. They called 911 and rushed home. Meantime, feeling the couple was up to no good, their son stayed calm and told them his mother was in the basement and father was in the backyard. It's live horror. Uh, my son was being taken like hostage in his own home. Soon after, he says they took a laptop computer and fled. How's he doing? He's traumatized. Besides installing an outdoor security camera, the father hopes other families reinforce this one simple lesson with their children. Just didn't know, you know, not to open the door. Yeah. And we've told him countless times, like, don't answer the door. The way there's no need to answer the door. Now, the homeowner told us there have been break-ins in the area, and the video captured by his security camera Saturday is so clear, he hopes it will help police as they investigate. Just a terrifying incident for the child, and as you can imagine, frightening for the parents who watched part of it unfold live on their cell phones. My hands are sweaty right now because I watched the video along with listening to this story this morning. And to imagine this young man uh, more or less doing the right thing up to a certain point. But Loren, I know for my kids, the instructions have been, if you don't know who's at the door, don't open it. But you see that uh, individual with what appears to, Karen Lieberman refers to it as a sharp object, I think they were intent on getting into that house no matter what. So now the kid's at home and then they break in and then they find the kid inside. I mean, th this is going nowhere good to begin with, no matter what the instructions are here. And yes, I suppose not opening the door is the lesser of two evils here. But my goodness, I couldn't imagine watching this from afar. Uh <laughs> You can Monday morning morning quarterback the heck out of these things, uh, these things, and I guess the parents are sharing, so other parents uh, have a plan in a circumstance like this. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, the rule in our house too is if we're not home, 
don't answer the door unless you know who it is. They ask who it is, and we even have a password system that you know, like that we'll use just so that we have to say so they know that they can open the door. But I don't know if in practice. You know, you can say it a thousand times to kids. I've made mistakes security-wise, you know, because our, you, know, you go to the door. I've been home alone, and I think, well, that was really dumb of me at night. This, you know, big man's at the door. I don't know what he's trying to sell. You know, those kinds of things. You, you, we all make mistakes, and so, you know, your kids are going to do that too. And then you have the questions about when should they call 911? How would they do that in this circumstance if they couldn't get to a phone? His his wherewithal to at least say his mom was in the basement was great because that yes. obviously kept them from sticking around too long but at the end of the day brett we've all been home alone as as young kids or teens and probably did things we shouldn't have and again as i say done it as an adult where you think well that was dumb security wise that was dumb and i'm a 45 year old woman just one of the things that sort of struck me about this was the the change in technology and yes. uh, because i'm not a not a parent so i don't think about these things but having access to stuff like security camera footage uh, whether it's just for your front door or from within the house uh, at any given time, to, would I wonder, like, does it make you feel better knowing that you have access to that? Or or does it perhaps keep you on edge because you're wanting to check the, the, the footage from time to time? I know when I first got our cameras, I was checking it on a regular basis. I don't nearly as much any longer. If I've got a sense, you know, if I've heard noise, Certain uh, times of the day or night, I will check the camera to see, you know, was there someone in the side yard? Was there someone at the front door? That technology, also, Loren, like the, the, the doorbell technology typically includes an interactive microphone so that you can speak to whoever's at the door. Yeah. And even you if you're you? half you a world away, you can mimic the fact that you're at home and that you're not coming to the door. So once again, I don't want a Monday morning quarterback the heck out of what what these folks did as parents and how they used the technology. But, you know, uh, this is a good reminder to have some some solid rules in place, some protocols in place. Maybe calling 911 sooner would have been the way to go. But until you're in the middle of it, you never know how you're going to react. No. How would you know when you answered the door that suddenly, you know, your spidey senses might be tingling? But then how are you grabbing your phone? You reach for that phone. Does that escalate the situation? If you say I'm calling 911, does that make it worse? Like there's all sorts of things to consider in that moment. And you're 13. Yeah, well, for sure. But mom and dad are watching at the same time. Once again, could, I don't want to criticize yes, them. Yep. They could have called 911 as well. There's, like I said, lots of things to learn out of this, which is why I give the parents props for uh, for sharing this story, because that, that's not easy to, to come forth with. You can read more at cjob.com. Once again, the headline, Father Watches Live on Phone App as video shows strangers entering home while child is alone. Looks like it is our top story at globalnews.ca. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we have a concert announcement at 7.05, and here's how you can win tickets for that concert. First, I'm going to read a headline at cjob.com. Not going to get into it because the subject matter is certainly not appetizing at this time of morning, but it is fascinating and quite scary stuff. The headline is, Are You Afraid of Vomit? You're Not Alone. 
and it's talking about a genuine fear. It's called emetophobia. And if you're, it's really fascinating stuff. If you want to read more, cjob.com. Um, and it's just got me thinking, you know, what are – not to be – I don't want to sound like I'm belittling this or mocking it. it it's certainly a, a unique and strange phobia. But, you know, phobias are obviously crippling and debilitating. So, of course, we're not mocking it. But it just got me thinking of, like, the strange things that one might be afraid of, uh, whether it's a serious thing or something just light and random. So that's what we want to know from you at 204-780-6868. What's the, something weird that either scares you or just kind of – weirds you out or maybe there's like a you know one-off incident from a time in your life whether you're a kid or a teenager or whatever where something goofy scared you and you're like why did why was i scared of that why was i scared of that clown 204-780-6868 so cameron portress why don't we start with you sir uh well i mean i, th- I think this is probably common amongst a lot of kids i was i was afraid of whatever was under my bed um, like you would do the the rally where you would jump from about six or seven feet away from the from the opening at the bottom. And, still do it. Uh, yeah. Do you? Yes. You still jump in. Guy's well, gonna... you never know what's under there, man. Well, I <laughs> you don't know. Well, I I watched. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. That was one of the movies that scared me the most when I was a kid, and um, I had like this this like crazy feeling that I could feel his blade hand start to come through the bottom of the bed, and it was like piercing me, and it was going to come up from the bottom of the bed, which I think was what happened to Johnny Depp in the first movie, and I felt like that was going to happen to me, and so like I was just like I, I would sleep on top of my blanket because that of course that was going to create a shield that was going to protect me uh, from from Freddy. Kruger, so um, yeah, I mean, like just stupid stuff like that, like the closet, all the classic stuff, the basement, um, which you know I, I find I find silly now, but as a kid, it was like this was real, this was real stuff. Yeah, hey, hey, man, it's it it still kind of lingers. I remember I, I put my house coat instead of the putting on the hook on the back of my bedroom door, I put it on the corner. So then when I woke up, kind of groggy, I saw all I could see was this large dark shadow yeah. at my doorway and it took me a minute to realize oh it's just my house coat i put it in the in a different spot but i was freaked out man i yeah. was freaked out i was scared forte what about you for me well spiders you know i'm always afraid of spiders as long as they're inside if they're outside i don't care but once i see them inside that's what freaks me out uh fear of bed bugs i've never had to deal with them but like when i go on the bus or taking a plane or going to a movie theater i'm always looking at the chairs very carefully and of course my biggest one would be ticks because when i was a kid i was out camping and we were covered in ticks Mm. and i remember uh getting home and uh doing the old tick check and uh, look down my trousers, and oh, no. uh, you, you find one. And uh, after that moment, it's just uh, it's a no-go for me. Nope. No-go. Okay. No, hey, that's a common one too, bud. Jeff Braun, what about you? All wild animals. All of them. Every last thing that lives and breathes outside. If you don't, uh, if it doesn't sleep in a house, I'm afraid of it, uh, <laughs> including birds. And, and, and because we come to work so early in the morning and I live on the west side of the city, there's a part of me that always thinks, you know, uh, Tiger gets out of that zoo at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> two hours later, you down on two hours later, I'm the first thing it sees alive. Uh, how, how do you defend yourself against a tiger? I'm always worried about even something as dumb as like the elevator doors opening, and there's just like a bear inside the elevator that what? jumps out. Okay, so Jeff. I always, uh, you know, I, I, if the elevator doors open and 
you and I are on the opposite side, I will be staring intently at you right. as those doors open because I'm just ready to make my getaway how, how in case you, I have to. How do you defend yourself against a sneak tiger attack <laughs> in Charleswood? You can't. That's why you just yeah, got to yeah, have your head it. on a swivel. You got to see it coming a mile away. Just present your neck and just let <laughs> it take you out. Drive in the boulevard lane, not the, the, the curb lane because then you, you got a better uh, chance of it coming from the oh, side. You got more <laughs> What if it's standing in the media and asking for change? Well, then, then you can see it a mile away, though. You know what, I mean? <laughs> what if it's, it's in your car? In the shadows. If, if it's in my car already, well, then I'm dead. I, I, I will accept death easily if the tiger is right there and I have no other recourse. <laughs> He's going to lay down, aren't you? He's yep. going to be like, you got me, tiger. Like, then it starts licking you. Good attack. It starts purring. I can attest to this fear as well because when we worked at Polo Park every spring, there were two the same two geese. Oh, those, those geese. They, those they geese. came back every year. Sure. And uh, they used to torment Jeff. Loren, what about you? Birds are fear. scary. You, you, there's something about their eyes. The you just can't trust They're them. They're total yeah. jerks. They stare at you, not, not all birds, but a crow lands beside you and you're like, nah, crow. I don't know what They're you want. They're also the only things in this planet that like will willingly just poop on you. <laughs> with ease. I got swooped regret. at by a hawk not long ago. It was awful. Like it came right at my head. Oh. Yeah. Well, your hair looks sort of like a nest. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. be forgiven on that. <laughs> they wanted to make it a home. Birds, birds, I will admit, are freaky. I still don't put my leg over the edge of a bed um, for fear of what's under there. So that kind of matches Cam and Forche. Stairs that are open, do you know what I mean? Where they're not closed in so that someone could grab your leg if you're walking up the stairs oh, from yeah. underneath. Yeah. That goes back to like that farmhouse, our old farmhouse. The basement was just a kind of more of... Uh, I don't want to say dank, but it was just where we stored you know, cold vegetables. There was a shower down there. We did have a shower down there, but it wasn't much. And I would race up those stairs every day, even though I could visibly see that nobody <laughs> was under the stairs. Like I could see that. I was like, I don't know, man. By the time I get close to the top, that hand is coming out. Mm-hmm. And so I would sprint up the stairs as fast as possible. And then just on the weird out front, you know uh, those tubes of, say, cleaning wipes that are all shoved in a roll, like, uh, yeah. And you open, what, what are they called? I'm, I'm blanking here. You open it Lysol? up. Lysol? Lysol wipes, wipes or something. And you pull them out of those containers and the noise that makes. I can't be around that. Oh, it just gave me like the nails on chalkboard feeling right oh, now. Just even talking about that's it. That's right. I can't stand it. Do not pull those out in front of me. Like, you think about the tiger incapacitating brawn. One block over <laughs> is someone just pulling out one of those wipes and I've collapsed <laughs> to the ground and been like, you've got me. I'm out. Wow. Never imagined seeing that on the list of lethal weapons. <laughs> and Mackling would last uh, call. Well, my irrational fear of all, you know, moving things. I'm sort of like Jeff, but maybe not as far far flung in terms of my fear of uh, animals and, and just anything that moves erratically, but the fear of the unknown. And the best example I can give of the time I was at Falcon Lake and my friend wanted to go bobbing with the, you take your life jacket, you turn it upside down and you put your legs in the arms and you can just sort of sit there with a beverage and just relax. I lasted like 30 seconds trying to relax and that just, just, (laughs) what's in this water i I don't want to know i don't want my toes nibbled i don't i don't want it brushing against me i'll drink my beer on the dock jason Voorhees, he's under there it is mackling mcgarry and mcnab we continue in a moment our out of pocket series on inflation looking at how it is affecting seniors but we have a concert announcement 
And this man has returned to the spotlight thanks to multiple Oscar nominations, including Best Picture for last year's biopic. The show is called One Night with the King. Three Elvis champions in one night. Direct from Las Vegas, One Night with the King takes you on a musical journey from Elvis's early days at Sun Studios to the Vegas era and everything in between. It's happening Thursday, May 4th, 7 p.m., Club Region Event Center. There is a pre-sale through Ticketmaster that runs tomorrow. The password is Vegas. Tickets go on sale Thursday, February 9th. And we're playing this song, Burning Love, because I saw an Elvis tribute show with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, actually, about like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I can't remember. And uh, they opened with this and proceeded to have two and a half of the most fun hours I've ever had. Oh, I bet. Like, and then the thing about Elvis, too, is you might not be a fan or think you're not. And then you get into his concert. Even when I watched the movie that came out last year, I was like, every single song you knew, and you were shocked about how much you knew about Elvis. How was the movie, by the way? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it was good. It was hard. It was hard. He had a hard life, and there was lots of great success and triumphs. Ugh, but man, Carl uh, Parker. By the end of it, you're just you're just kind of incredibly sad. Okay, so we are going to continue to ask you to tell us the weird things that scare you for a chance to win yourself some tickets to see One Night with the King, and we're going to pick a winner at nine fifteen. Over a six-week period, as part of the Out-of-Pocket series, Global News is examining how inflation is impacting Canadians from coast to coast. And today, we'll head to Montreal for a look at how inflation is hitting seniors who are trying to enjoy their golden years, but are having a tough time affording the basics. Global's Tim Sargent reports. When Janet Torge looks into her fridge to take out some of her favorite food, she's hit with sticker shock. My favorite, asparagus. Seven dollars for a—it's—it's <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Price increases in groceries continues to be among the highest of all products measured by Statistics Canada. It's especially hard for seniors on fixed incomes, but also for those who are still working. Torge is 75. She freelances as a bookkeeper, does some government work, and is trying to get a retirement plan off the ground. Radical Rest Homes, a project to build community housing for seniors. I absolutely cannot stop working. She's not alone. An Ipsos public affairs poll conducted for Global News suggests 22% of Canadians are completely out of money and they're finding it difficult to pay for basic necessities like heat, food and rent. It's difficult for a lot of people to live and they should have a bit of a leg up. The federal government is increasing the maximum monthly payments of the Canada Pension Plan this year for seniors to more than $1,300, a 6.5% increase compared to 2022. But this economist argues the government should avoid wild fluctuations in pension payments so that seniors know what to expect. It's when it gyrates up to eight and then comes down to five and then to three. That's the problem. Feeling the squeeze of living on a fixed or limited income against the rising cost of living is the hottest common topic among seniors. It's shocked, really. Many of them, you know, like it's, it's the discussion anywhere. Some studies suggest that companies may be taking advantage of inflation to artificially increase prices and boost their profit margins. Corporations seem to be using this time of, of high inflation in order to sort of using it as a cover uh, to increase prices higher than they than they need to. Torch just hopes prices will start coming down this year so that she can live comfortably when she does decide to retire. Tim Sargent, Global News, Montreal. 
So, of course, guys, we've been talking for months, I would say almost a year now, about the sticker shock of inflation. And then, of course, when you look at savings, whether you're 30 or 60 or 70, your savings could be dwindling because you're putting out more out of pocket just for everyday living. But also that money that you socked away might be dwindling because markets, of course, has really been impacted by this almost recession, recession, whatever you want to call it. So if you're thinking about retirement, you're also might be thinking, now, I don't know if I can afford to do that. But what I think is neat about this story is it sort of ties in with what we've been talking about over the past two days on CGOB. It's it's aging and seniors and then the elderly and, and how are we going to house our the next generation of seniors and maybe even our own generation. And they talked in that story about a project that's called... Um, rest homes, radical rest homes. And what they're looking at in Quebec area is that they might build different options. Seniors don't necessarily want to go into big towers where it's all seniors. And so they're, they're suggesting you could do things like maybe you keep your home, but you allow an immigrant or refugee family to live with you and you work together in that home. You might be a pet lover and have a bunch of pets and say, okay, well, is there a veterinarian student who would come live with me, help me with my pets, but also do room and board? Uh, could you be an artist as a senior and then invite young artists? Like, is there a way to share spaces better, both old and young? And it reminded me of that story years ago in Winnipeg. It was the Women's um, Housing Initiative Greg, where they sort of did like a Golden Girls. There was a group of women that said, we don't want to move into a seniors complex. We want to live alone. Why not share a house together? And so there's these seniors living together in a home, kind of like you would have in residence in your 20s and and they're loving life. So it's, it's really about thinking differently with how to not just stretch the dollars, but about that livability part. God, we had the conversation about multi-generational homes yesterday, maybe not the way you drew it up. 30 years ago or 40 years ago of what your retirement might look like or what your 40s or 50s might look like. You know, you finally move out of home later and later in life, it seems, at least with uh, certain generations. And now 20 years later, you're contemplating maybe your mom and dad moving in with you under a certain circumstance. And also you mentioned this idea of, of aging in place and inflation, sort of two crises uh, you know, crossing one another is a confluence of, of two crises right now. And that's that shortage of personal care homes and then the increasing cost of everything and, and the choices that need to be made on both fronts. So when we spoke with Jake and Mich- Jason Michalishan yesterday, he didn't use any specific numbers, but if you have tried to help your parents or your grandparents find a place to move with any sort of assisted living component, it is thousands of dollars a month. In fact, you know, it, it knocked you off your chair if you knew what some people are paying every month, Brett, to uh, have a roof over their head and to have their meals provided for them. It, it's shockingly expensive. Coming up at 835, part two of Richard Cloutier's series on aging and aging in place. He speaks to a woman whose goal is to stay in her home until she's at least 100. So that is coming up at 835. And if you missed yesterday's story, by the way, on our show, we ran that at 735. So you can find that in the audio vault at cjob.com or in our podcast, which you can also subscribe to at cjob.com. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb are asking you about something weird that scares you or weirds you out, creeps you out. If you missed Jeff Braun's irrational fear last hour. And because we come to work so early in the morning and I live on the west side of the city, there's a part of me that always thinks, you know, 
Uh, Tiger gets out of that zoo at two in the morning. <laughs> two hours He's later, you down on two drugs. hours later, I'm the first thing it sees alive. Uh, how do you defend yourself against a tiger? So a text from one of our listeners with an intimate knowledge of all things Assiniboine Park Zoo says, don't worry, Mr. Braun, there is 24-7 security on site and the tiger will eat them <laughs> first. <laughs> what if that's just the appetizer? I mean, you don't know. Braun's not wrong. It would be. not right. But. <laughs> Could you just imagine, though, if that actually happened? Like, I, the, I think of the life of Pi. Mm-hmm. And uh, just even watching the trailer of this guy in a tiny boat with a tiger, I think I, I'm pretty sure Jeff talked about that years back, saying I would that he would just throw himself overboard and accept his fate, accept his demise. He'd rather go down like that than have the sharks tiger get him. Versus tigers, well, I'd probably drown before the sharks yeah, got him. Fair enough. <laughs> and what's this from Scaredy Cat Adam? Things that scare me, I don't get scared very easily, says Adam, but the one thing that creeps me right out and I can't even watch it is my wife putting in her contact lenses, (laughs) shivers just thinking about it, it gives me the willies and I don't know what it is, but just touching your eyes scares the out of me. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I get that. Yeah. It is creepy. Watching it, does it? It's uh, even putting like... My, my, you should see me try to put my mascara on myself. My sister makes so much fun of me. She's like, what is the matter with you? Like, my eyes and hands are just shaking as I get close to my own eye. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it took me, uh, when I first got my contact lenses, it took me probably six months before I could do it quickly because it would take me 10, 15 minutes just to get one of them in. Uh, it's, 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 it's just such a bizarre thing to retrain your body to do. Yeah. You and I had this discussion just the other day about the fact that I went to go get fitted for contact lenses. Jackie says, you'll never be able to do it. She was right. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. The highly anticipated healthcare meeting between the Prime Minister and the Premiers is set for this afternoon in Ottawa. Yeah, I think it's safe to say, Brat leaders, Premiers, they don't always agree on issues. They don't always agree on what should be a priority. But I think almost all provinces and territories recognize that the healthcare system, pretty much coast to coast to coast, is in crisis. And so there are big questions as to whether a deal that would see billions in federal funding eventually transferred to provinces will be reached. Global's Mackenzie Gray joins us now from just outside where this meeting will take place. Good morning, Mackenzie. Good morning. So let's talk about what's on the table or what might be on the table. What are you hearing? We've talked to a bunch of sources. Justin Trudeau is going to offer the province a 10-year agreement today, and the structure of that agreement is going to be split into two different portions. First part is going to be an increase to the Canada Health Transfer, which is the main way right now that the provinces get money from the federal government. Now, all the provinces have been asking for 35% or the federal government to pay for 35% of health care costs. That is not going to happen. That is not in the first offer today from the, from the prime minister. But it's the expectation there's going to be many new billions of dollars on the table for the Canada Health Transfer. Separately, there is going to be, a, as a part of the offer, other deals that the, provinces, uh, the prime minister wants to make with the provinces on a bilateral individual basis. The argument from the federal government is that the provinces have different needs and we want to come to the table to focus on those specific things in each different province. But with this new money is going to come at least two conditions that sources have told us are going to be put on the table. The first one is going to be that this new federal money that is coming to, uh, to the provinces or is going to be offered to the provinces will be contingent upon them spending it in the public system. So here in Ontario, uh, recently we've seen uh, Doug Ford, the premier, 
signed deals with for-profit clinics to try and deal with the surgery backlog. And that is something that is done in a number of different provinces. The federal government is saying that cannot be how this federal money is going to be used. The second thing that they want is the, the provinces to better share data amongst themselves. They say that it's kind of a hodgepodge system right now, that, and they don't know necessarily if one province is doing a really good job at uh, dealing with the surgery backlog, they want that information about how they're doing that to be shared with the other provinces and with the federal government to get best outcomes for Canadians. So that's the structure of the, how the deal is going to look, whether or not to be seen, whether provinces are going to like that structure. And of course, Manitoba has also announced that it has struck different deals with with providers in the United States and pro- particular to to uh, clear up some of that surgery backlog, Mackenzie. Premiers held a strategy session yesterday. Manitoba's Premier Heather Stephenson is the chair of the Council of the Federation. What was said in that meeting? You know, I'd say Ms. Stephenson was maybe the, you know, from the public comments ahead of that meeting when we were interviewing them outside of the, uh, outside of the hotel that they're at. She was probably the, the least optimistic of everyone. I think she's trying to, uh, you know, kind of temper expectations. But we heard from Scott Moe, the Saskatchewan Premier, uh, who's basically made a living out of criticizing Justin Trudeau, probably being the most optimistic premier of them all, that they're going to be able to get a deal done today, or, or at least a structure for a deal in place. Uh, you know, we'd heard from the provinces before that not only did they want uh, the federal government to pay for 35% of health care funding, but that they wanted absolutely no conditions on that. And that's usually a hallmark of Quebec. If they want money from the federal government, that uh, we get to spend on how we want. But even uh, Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec, had said, look, I want no conditions, but uh, if one of the conditions happens to be that we share data amongst the provinces, that's okay with Quebec. So the classic, uh, you know, uh, we don't like that, but yeah, we'll actually, uh, we'll allow that. So there does seem to be some unanimity on the condition side, which had been previously been a sticking point. The big thing is going to be how much money is Justin Trudeau willing to come to the table. That's something that we don't know right now. So what time are we expecting this announcement today? The meeting is going to be happening at one o'clock. It's going to last for two hours. We know that the structure is going to be that uh, the federal government is going to offer the deal to the provinces uh, and then they're going to leave the room and the provinces are going to be have the opportunity to talk about it. And then they can either counteroffer or share the concerns or questions. But, you know, the expectation is that there's not going to be a deal done today. There's not going to be a big signing ceremony at uh, four o'clock Eastern or something like that. Uh, but the best case scenario we've heard from uh, when I've talked to provincial sources and federal sources is that there would be, you know, a broad-based agreement on, on the broad strokes of this. Okay, we're okay with an X percent increase in the Canada health transfer. Uh, we're all right with striking bilateral deals. And you know what? Some of the conditions you brought forward, Prime Minister, we're all right with that. Uh, you know, we can agree to these broad-based terms, but we'll let the finance ministers hammer out uh, the specific details on timing of funding and, and other issues like that. And we'll let the health ministers bang out the specific things when it comes to other conditions or things like that. So there's a lot of moving parts here, but I think a lot of Canadians... Uh, and the politicians who are involved with this too, or who are feeling the heat on healthcare, because we know this is a top issue for Canadians, uh, would be happy to come out of here with an agreement that we have a framework and we're willing to continue to work forward within that framework to deliver more funding to Canadians. I'm picturing a piece of paper with a number written on it sliding across the table like a movie scene. I get that's not how this happens, Mackenzie. But, you know, it's an election year for Manitoba, so there's politics that are part of this, too. Of course, we want to see improvements to our health care system, but there's a lot weighing on leaders right now. And so walking away with some sort of deal, is that seen overall as better than nothing? Because people, at the very least, are saying, do something, do anything. I think that's a, a large part of the public calculus for Mr. Trudeau. It hasn't been the best time for him uh, for the last number of months here in Ottawa politically. Uh, and I think now he's recognized that this is an issue that uh, is a big one for Canadians and it could be a win for him politically if he's coming on the table with a substantial offer. 
But I also think it does put not just uh, Ms. Stephenson, but the other premiers in a difficult position. If, if the offer is viewed as a reasonable one today by the prime minister, I think that certainly uh, puts the premiers in a, in a position where they have to put a little bit of water in their wine. Their, their demand before that, we need $28 billion additionally from the federal government, when this year they're going to give them $50 billion, that's what the Canada Health Transfer is going to be, uh, is a lot. And for them to say they want no conditions, if the prime minister comes today and says, look, we need a couple of basic conditions uh, and we're willing to give you a good chunk of that. Uh, that's a I think a lot of Canadians would say that's a reasonable offer and would put the premiers in a position where there's only a little bit of wiggle room for them to negotiate. Uh, it does seem like they are willing to negotiate, but we'll have to see uh, how the day goes on. One person I'm watching for is Alberta Premier Daniel Smith. Could she blow this thing up? Uh, it looks like the federal government is looking to try and get unanimity from the provinces. I would have told you guys before, a couple months ago, if, if we'd been chatting, that, that there's no way that that would have happened, but the conditions have changed. But Miss Smith certainly would be the wild card in the room today. If she wants to be seen making a deal with Justin Trudeau, I'm not sure if she does. Uh, but it looks like many of the other premiers are willing to do that, even Mr. Trudeau's political uh, foes for the most part. Global's Mackenzie Gray joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mackenzie, thank you very much for this. Thank you. And we will have more on this through the day and after the meeting, for sure, on CJOB and through Global News. And you He can had more. me with wine. <laughs> no? <laughs> I really, peek, I really uh, peeked up there. I was like, oh, sorry, what did I miss? Is there wine at this table with his offer? It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Coming up at 8.35, we continue our aging series that we began yesterday. Richard Cloutier's piece, which ran at 7.35 yesterday morning. If you want to check that out in the audio vault at cjob.com, some of the stuff covered in there, the difficulties the sandwich generation might be facing, having to raise kids and take care of their aging parents. And uh, you can also get that in our podcast at cjob.com. But right now we want to talk speed. One Winnipeg City Councilor says his constituents are frustrated with the cost of progress. Yeah, if you've traveled the south perimeter east of Pemina Highway in the past year or so, you will have driven through construction for the new interchange being constructed at St. Mary's Road. The $135 million project has been a long time in the making. You know the saying, two steps forward, one step back. In this case, the one step back comes before the two steps forward. That means even more traffic congestion changing traffic flows in a constant stretch of highway, which is now designated as a construction zone. And Loren, our next guest, says that the construction zone is causing issues. Because, of course, with that construction zone, there are reduced speeds. I travel south, north on St. Mary's Road, past the perimeter all the time. And uh, we're bringing on now St. Norbert City Councillor Marcus Chambers to tell us more. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? I'm good, and I'm glad we're talking about this because I have to say, when I suddenly came across these reduced speed signs, particularly south of perimeter on St. Mary's, I thought, what? We're nowhere near a construction zone. And so I suppose in theory, they want me to slow down. So when I get there, I'm at a reduced speed. But what are you hearing from residents in terms of how this might be frustrating them? Well, exactly that. I mean, they're uh, questioning why the uh, speed zones are being reduced on the basis that there's no construction in the immediate area. Uh, this is about safety of the workers, and we do want to ensure that, you know, motorists are well aware of that they're entering a designated construction zone. But if these zones are inconsistent in terms of the length uh, that they are, 
again, it, it, it creates the perception that this is a cash grab by extending those zones and, and with improper signage, uh, motorists are just not aware. And as a result, they're getting tickets, and those are the calls that I'm getting to my office. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a proponent of better signage all the time. But, I, you know, if I could play the devil's advocate just for a moment here, Councillor, once you've been through there once, shouldn't that be enough? No, you're absolutely right, and this is this is about driver safety. But, you know, we're also, you know, some of the calls that I'm getting are based on the fact that they're turning off side streets, you know, whether it's Forbes or or Christie or or Fraser Road, and there's no signage as they're turning on to St. Mary's Road, and as a result, they're getting caught in this zone. So I think it's a little bit unfair if the signage isn't properly stated, um, you know, bringing around that awareness for drivers. And if this is truly about safety, as uh, you know, as opposed to speed, then uh, the signage should reflect that and, you know, giving motorists enough time to slow down and adjust their, their, their driving habits accordingly. So the, this is just not on the perimeter highway where this is happening then, to be clear. This is happening also on St. Mary's Road? You're absolutely right. And I was at my mom and dad's who live in Southdale, and I'm in South St. Patel. And just driving along the perimeter highway, there are three different zones. It went from 100 down to 60, mm-hmm. back up to 100, down to 80 again, all between St. Anne's and St. Mary's Road. So if this is, uh, you know, based on the construction uh, and all of those zones changing, motorists need to be aware. But also on St. Mary's Road, where typically if you're coming in from places like St. Adolph, St. Agathe, Neverville, or even just the south end by the floodway, uh, there should be proper signage alerting motorists that they should be reducing their speed. There is signage, Marcus. You know, if I'm coming north on St. Mary's, which is 200, say from the floodway, you will eventually see signs that say this is now entering a construction zone. You're you know, now reduce your speed to 60. I think some people just question that, yes, I get that, that you should be slowing down as you approach the zone, but it feels like it's coming from a long ways out. And I think that's where people think that the, the cash grab comes into play because, because in theory, you feel like you're nowhere near the zone and you're you and might be getting dinged anyway. And you use the operative word there, eventually see the signage. And I think what's happening is that there, the, the, the speed van is, uh, that the photo van is right there, you know, even before the signage. And so, uh, again, they're not having the opportunity to reduce their speed. You eventually see the signage uh, as you're going in, but the, what they've done is created such a long construction zone that, uh, you know, motorists, again, are not aware that they should be reducing their 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 speed before they they get to the signage, so that's that's exactly what we're asking the province to take a look at is how this was established and ensure that motorists have a fair chance to slow down before um, they are entering that construction zone and being ticketed unfairly. So to confirm, then this uh, the photo van is provincial and not for the city. Yeah, I, you know, outside the city of of Winnipeg. Uh, it's Manitoba Transportation and Infrastructure that is is responsible for setting up the designated construction zones. This is still within the city limits, but because of the fact that this is a provincial project, uh, MTI is the one that should be consulting with the city to establish that uh, construction zone and ensure that there's proper signage. All right, Marcus Chambers joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. Have a great day. St. Norbert City Councilor Marcus Chambers joining us live. And yeah, those, um, <laughs> the, the way that 
they sometimes set these things up, whether it's the city or the province. Yeah. I remember there was a project, <clears throat> I think it's when they were doing the uh, the Keniston flyover years ago uh, the, to go over to, to Bishop. And the, the, oh gosh, this is 10 years ago now because the woman I was dating at the time, she got a ticket sort of on the back end. She was going eastbound from Keniston around to, to Bishop. And the construction had ended for like 500 yards. Mm-hmm. So she sped up. But she did speed, to, to, to be fair, she did speed up before the sign said, you can now go 80. So sure enough, there was a van sitting right there, and she got pegged because she was already doing 80 before she even had, uh, before she crossed that line, so to speak. But that was just, that was a total ripoff. And I know people yeah. get excited about the fact whether there's construction workers there or not, but also realize, and I'm not a shill for, for uh, more tickets on this front, but just realize also, if there are pylons there, that road is narrower than usual. You don't have the short shoulder to play with potentially in terms of if something unusual happens, that road is artificially shrunk. But where's the consistency? Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can get a ticket in a construction zone on a Saturday or Sunday if there's no, even if there's not a worker inside, if there's no work going on. In the school zones, are you okay on Saturday and Sunday to to go above the 30 when there's no kids around? Is it not just Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 530? Mm -hmm. They're saying there's no kids around on the weekend, so we won't ticket you. There's no workers around on the weekend, but we will ticket you. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. A reminder that we have concert tickets to give away. We just announced this at 7.05. One Night with the King. It's an Elvis tribute show coming to the Club Region Event Centre on May 4th. Thursday, May 4th. There is a pre-sale tomorrow through Ticketmaster. The password is Vegas. Tickets go on sale Thursday, this Thursday, February 9th. And we're asking you about the... Perhaps irrational fears, weird things that scare you or may have scared you in your life, like Jen, who says, my parents used to have a cold room in the basement of their house when they stored vehicles and jams, canning, etc. And I was terrified when the potatoes started to root and grow tentacles. I was convinced those potatoes were going to wrap their tentacles mm-hmm. around me and pull me into the root mm-hmm. cellar where I would never be found again. Well, if you stood or there maybe. for uh, like six months, that's exactly what would have happened. <laughs> Just wrap around you like those jungle plants, you know, where you see in every movie. There's just some sort of plant that sucks you into the bush. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Or even the little shop of horrors plant. Feed me, Seymour, feed me. So 204-780-6868. Tell us a story about the things that scare you, the weird things that scare you, for a chance to win those tickets. We'll give those away at 915. And in our next segment, we have tickets to give away for the C4 Kubota Center Comic Con coming on Sunday, March 5th. So we started this yesterday. So often we talk about seniors care within the context of providing basic services. But aging in place means enhancing life to not only stay in your home longer, but to offer more services throughout the community. It also means better transportation, programming, and different ways to live, like teaming seniors up with students. Yeah, that's right. That might mean them doing some chores for you that you might otherwise do yourself. 680 CJOB's Richard Cluche introduces us to one woman whose goal is to stay in her home until she hits at least 100. Oh, it was very exciting was very empty. We had little or no furniture. Peggy Prendergast has lived in her home for 65 years. She leans on a cane to move around. Yes, arthritis limits her mobility, but boy, does she get around. She drives, she volunteers, and teaches art classes. Were there many homes here? 
No, we were. We, this was a display home at the time. So Windsor Park was in. The, this is the beginning stages. She's ninety. I planned my ninetieth. I wouldn't even let them buy the cake. <laughs> I phoned my grandkids first, and I said, "It's my birthday." on Friday and I'd like to take you out for dinner. Will you come? Oh, sure, Grandma. <laughs> on it went from there. You're Everybody, in charge. I was in charge. Prendergast wants to stay in her home as long as possible. That's the goal of most. And certainly the government talks about aging in place. We need to make sure that um, people are still able to have that autonomy, to still potentially have risk in their life. Uh, there's always risks, but we shouldn't be trying to be so protective and in some cases uh, paternalistic uh, that people aren't able to live their lives the way they want to. Michelle Porter is the director of the Centre on Aging at the University of Manitoba. It has a lot to do with our, our ageist um, thinking as a society. There's a lot of things that we fear about aging, whether it's for ourselves or for other people. And so we do kind of just avoid having those conversations, avoid uh, thinking about it. Porter says it means planning. For example, if a loved one loses the ability to drive, what are the feasible alternatives? The fixed route transit system. Well, that doesn't work for many people if they've um, lost their license due to uh, a medical condition. Our sidewalks aren't cleared uh, for people that need to use mobility aids like walkers or wheelchairs. They're very slippery, so there's a fall risk. Uh, the bus stops aren't cleared very well. But we also need to be better uh, as a society in removing barriers uh, to people being able to, in this case, as we're talking about, get around uh, in the community. It's the way we design and build communities. It's also program. Agent opportunity, whether it's day hospitals within the city where people are suffering from loneliness or depression, where they just need to be around other people to talk to them and to have some sense of community. We are looking at those types of supports. But again, the purpose of that is for people to be in their homes and yet be able to have an outing or to go somewhere and to look at what kinds of things can be built for them. Dr. Sean Thomas is regional medical specialty lead, primary care with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. Thomas is part of a team looking at care options beyond home care and addressing one of the big obstacles to independence, the cost. We have to look at things like assisted living facilities or supportive housing. And you are absolutely correct. The cost of a lot of those centres is significant. And for a number of people, it's out of the scope of what they can afford to pay. So within the Regional Health Authority and Shared Health Manitoba, there has been focus groups and projects targeting how to create and build affordable housing. Now, those things take time. I can't say that that's happening tomorrow, but but those projects are taking place actively for us to look at those options for people. Porter says one model popular in Europe and in some Canadian cities, especially around universities, would allow students to earn money or live rent-free with seniors. Home-sharing models where, in particular, students uh, could have uh, lower rents and uh, live in the home of an older person and help with some of the, the chores around the house uh, that would help them to, to stay in their home, provide them with uh, some social 
engagement as well and taking advantage of the fact that, you know, some of the houses are not being maybe used to their full extent. Porter says it also means valuing those who work with seniors a whole lot more, salaries and benefits. I got myself a bigger table and I can have five students around it. Back in Windsor Park, Prendergast is slowly working on some home renovations to make getting around easier. The plan is... The plan is to stay put. I'm fixing up my house to absolutely suit me. And How long do you expect to stay here? I have no idea. I, you have to set a goal. So my goal is to be 100. Well, we'll come back in I, 10 years. What are the abilities? When you're 100 and do this okay. interview again. Okay. Because if you look at it rather than disabilities that you have, what abilities do you have? How can you set your house up so that I can live in it and do what I need to do or want to do? Man, there's so many conversations out of that. First of all, kudos to her. Uh, she's wonderful for that goal of hoping to be 100, living in her home, and she's making those adjustments now. And so there's all sorts of conversations around that. Richard mentioned some of the Canadian cities that are doing different things. Edmonton has a home strategy that it, you know, it has a home for life is the subject line, and it has seven essential needs if you're building a house to consider of how a person who is older or might have mobility issues would be able to get get around that home. So they're talking about the seven needs would be a zero-step entrance, an accessible kitchen, three-piece bathroom, keeping it on the main floor, the bedroom, ideally on the main floor, laundry, ideally on the main floor, keeping doors a certain width. These are the strategies they put out for builders if they're considering how to have these homes be good for all ages. And too often, we're just putting steps where we don't need steps. And when you get to a certain point in your life, that that doesn't make sense. And then the other thing that's in there is the the idea of if we want people to stay at home but have maybe home care come to them, are we willing to pay more to get good people staying in those jobs longer? They work hard and sometimes they're making, you know, 15 to 18, 19 bucks an hour. How much more are we willing to spend? Because we have all these conversations about doing better by our daycare system in the early years of our lives. What about the home care system at the end of our life? And then when it comes to just sort of the gentrification of it and having mixed demographics, mixed ages, I spent a summer with my grandmother when she was living in the Alliance place and she had a bedroom and I had a mattress on the floor in the living room because I was working at a local paper and, and trying to make ends meet. And it was the best. Like they had like Friday night drink time and the guy would get on the piano and sing old songs and they'd have a rum and Coke and they had a little gym you could go to. And I'm not even sure if I was supposed to be there quite honestly, but I loved it. And I think the residents did too, because it brought different perspectives in. And so maybe we should talk more about, you know, when we do university residences or apartments around there, they don't all have to be young people. Mix it up. Yeah, well, statute of limitations, I think you're safe, McNabb, with regards to Yeah, being I like to think so. I, it's got to be place. 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's coming after you, but you know, you never know. And the whole idea of maintenance as well. Like my grandfather was in his home till he was 93, uh, but when he passed away and if I didn't show up on the right day in the spring or in the fall, I would catch him on the ladder trying to clean his own eaves troughs. And that was like right up until the last summer that he was around. So there are other things that we have to keep in mind as well. The the challenges of keeping the grass cut, keeping the snow cleared and all that. How do, how do we help our seniors achieve that so that they can say, stay in their homes longer? And absolutely, I would pay more. And we need to find a way to pay more to help people stay and have that home care way cheaper than building an actual facility by 
by tens of thousand dollars per individual, Brett. You can continue to hear more stories through the day on this on 680 CJOB. And we say thanks to Richard Kluche for bringing us a couple of terrific stories. If you missed yesterday's, you can hear it in the audio vault. It was at 7.35 yesterday morning. And you can also download that in the podcast for the start, which you can also find at cjob.com. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We're asking you about weird things that scare that scare you or either have scared you through your life. And we referenced a gorilla in the room. What's Don got for us, Greg? Many years ago during the CLE, which is basically the same as the Red River X, but in Thunder Bay, I'd spent perhaps too much time and money in the beer garden. When I got home at about 2 a.m., I was greeted by a life-sized stuffed gorilla. My sister had one sitting... In a rocking chair. The only light was from a street light coming through the window. I screamed like a blonde in an 80s horror flick. Ran away through the living room until my knee found the coffee table, sending me headfirst into the fireplace where I just stayed waiting for the inevitable. The family still has a laugh at that event. You know, on the on, on the horror line, we had a weird one from Alex who says, I have an odd fear of brunette females in white nightgowns. <laughs> I think of Reagan from The Exorcist oh, immediately. Yes. I was wondering yes. if that's where that was going. <laughs> and it's her darker face. And if it's dark, her face seems to change to the evil, scary face from the wow. movie. So. It's very specific. <laughs> that's why you should also hate outhouses. In all those 80s flicks, someone always went down in an outhouse. That's true, yeah. yeah. Never leave the group, right? Never leave no. the pack. Don't go to camp. Never I mean, uh, start goodness. reflecting upon, uh, uh, you know, your relationship. Like if you take out the picture of your girlfriend and you start, oh boy, I sure miss her. That's a sure sign that you're going down next. Yeah, <laughs> Go for a walk, right? Like be with your friends out yep. in the forest somewhere, but then say, I just need some time alone. Oh yeah, good, good strategy. <laughs> go for a walk, yeah. <laughs> um, what did Candace have on the subject of grasshoppers, Loren? Well, this kind of speaks to me. Candace says, when I was younger, my dad asked me to take the garbage down to the lane. Well, the walk had gardens on both sides and it seemed like there was just a lots of grasshoppers. They would jump all around me I would scream and then freeze my dad would then laugh like crazy my grandma would then yell to him go rescue her to this day I hate grasshoppers Candace says and I I have to agree with her like they have that prehistoric thing going on like they haven't evolved they just look the same like they've been around since biblical times and will come and get you that, I'd agree. And they're such a weird little because th- I think they can actually fly right yeah, but they yeah, just yeah, yeah. they just hop around you never know what it just seems like such an inefficient way to get around. It's like, I'm just going to jump and see which way the wind blows me. Uh, it's been working for a long time. <laughs> I know. They, they can, and we saw so many of them. I think it was this, just this past summer or a couple of summers ago. I can't remember. I remember um, when I was a kid at my mom's cousin's place. He lived out of town uh, somewhere south of the city, I think, and had this uh, just a huge property. And he had this old go-kart that he would just let us ride around in the backyard and so I'm ripping through this tall grass and stuff, and I must have gotten hit in the face by a billion grasshoppers. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can relate to that. Every time I see one, I get a little jumpy. So are grasshoppers in the same category? I know one lives in the water, one on the land, but leeches? When it, whenever you, mm. I watch Stand By Me and they have oh, that, yeah. the leech thing, I only had a leech on me once. It was at Adam or Max Lake down at the border south of uh, Boisevane. But uh, I did not enjoy that at all, ripping that off my foot. No. 
I remember telling my kids, calm down. It's just a leech when they were really small. And I'm trying to remember the lake we went to. It's in Riding Mountain, but it's not Clear Lake. And it's a lake you don't really swim in, but it's really pretty. And then I stepped in it and came out with this baby leech on my toe. and was like, get it off, get it off, get it <laughs> You just off. stepped in it and you got a leech. Yeah. Oh, there. I. I. It just some. Some years are worse than others, and so I was. I probably was in it for five or ten minutes, but I wasn't swimming in the water. I just was standing in there, and then got in the car and looked down, and I was like, "What is that between my toes?" And then it moved, and then I freaked out. And you had and no was, soul shaker was, with you. It was microscopic. Like I could have flicked it off, and I still was like, "Please <laughs> save me! Burn this thing! Burn it!" It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Congratulations to Alan Vanderwater, who picked up the tickets for the C4 Kaboto Center Comic Con coming Sunday, March 5th. Alan knew the next big Marvel movie coming out on February 17th, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. That looks exciting. The Couch Potatoes will have a review for you in the coming weeks. And a reminder that we also have tickets to give away for One Night with the King. Three Elvis champions in one night. Just announced this morning, coming to Club Region Event Center on May 4th. We're asking you about the weird things that scare you, about the weird things that freak you out. Maybe something you're embarrassed that it scares you. Maybe it's something that happened, just like a one-off thing where something scared you once upon a time. And I see that... Uh, Liz and you, Mackling, are kindred spirits. I would say. Uh, Liz says, my fear is swimming in a lake. We were at Grand Beach just laying on a floaty, and all of a sudden, I started paddling like a maniac, and my husband came out to meet me and asked, what was wrong? Told him, floating around, all I could think of was Jaws. So, there you go. I relate to that, Liz. Lots of prehistoric fish in Lake Winnipeg, so... I get, I get that like you don't know what's down there, but you know there's not a shark down no, there. You no, you don't. You do. No, you do. You don't. There's been no shark sightings. Mm-hmm. What is zero shark? Drop sightings. a shark into the lake? Mm-hmm. Could be freshwater sharks. You don't know. I know. There's no sharks in that lake. <laughs> you say that, but you don't really. There's have There's weird any things proof. in that lake. There's a lot of things to be worried about in our lakes, but sharks is not one of them. Fair enough, but uh, prehistoric fish uh, that are similar to sharks, uh, maybe in their size and their ability to bite you, and uh, no thanks. I'll just stay on the shore. <laughs> Swimming pool's perfect. Thank you kindly. <laughs> Last chance. Tell us the story. 204-780-6868. Question of the day at cjob.com for Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204-832-6243. How should speed and highway construction zones be enforced or managed? Your options are strict 24-7 enforcement, only when workers are present, or more signage and flashing lights. So you can cast your vote at cjob.com and Mackling. This has to do with a conversation that we had last hour with uh, City Councilor Marcus Chambers. Yeah, he says some of his constituents have has raised a fuss about the, the changing speed limits within that construction zone at the interchange perimeter and St. Mary's. So that's going to be, you know, that's a construction zone for the next couple of years as they build that interchange. And of course, Loren, you mentioned the fact that coming up uh, highway or PTH uh, 200 is, is uh, also an issue as they start that lower speed construction zone much earlier than uh, you would imagine. And so it's got some people frustrated. It's got some people wondering why it has to be set up that way. And I spent a lot of time in the United States over the years driving uh, all over the U S and, and those big highway projects, those we called them fire-breathing dragons. Those great big giant flashing lights that 
the arrows and show you where to go and the sign says you've got a construction project coming up, you know, the the speed limit is dropping. Please be aware of workers in the construction zone that take it very serious. In fact, in several states, in the heart of rush hour and the busiest times, they park highway patrol right at the beginning and the end of those construction zones. Like they make it very clear that they aren't messing around. And just like the school zones, in my mind, if it's all about safety, that signage should be as visible as it possibly can be. Flashing lights are uh, not a luxury. I mean, those are very easy to put in. I don't understand why uh, that that they would want anything to be obscure if it's all about protecting the, the workers. And the other thing, and I raised this in the last hour, is the consistency. So I get there have been very serious safety concerns for construction workers for years. There's been injuries. There's been deaths in, in both Manitoba and other provinces. And so we need to take that seriously. But when the work isn't happening, the question is, should there be enforcement? I, I might lean more towards yes, because if it's about creating that situation where whenever I see a construction sign, I slow down no matter what then it should be enforcement no matter what. But then I would say the same has to go for the school zones. And I had one listener say, oh, great, Loren. Next thing you know, we're going to have police vehicles out digging us at all hours of the day, seven days a week in school zones. It's just that it's just that if the idea is to create a pattern where we get used to just no matter what when you're around a school mm-hmm. or no matter what when you're in a construction zone, you go a certain speed, then make it that way all the time. Because otherwise you can't convince me it is about safety. That at 7.30 you know, or 6.30 in the morning versus 7.30, there may or may not be fewer kids. Kids go to daycares in schools and are dropped off early. Kids play in the playgrounds at schools and are there Saturday and Sundays. And, we're and not in the summertime, that. hello. And all through the summer. you yeah. know. And so that's where it becomes frustrating is that consistency message. And the same for me would then go with my, my only construction zone ticket was on a Saturday when no work was going on. I think mine was on a Sunday. Right. So that's fine. But then why isn't that the case for other enforcement policies? Well, another thing that can be confusing as well is sometimes they'll, if there, if there are no workers present, they'll turn those signs around. Like if you're going through that's a construction true. zone, like I think, uh, of course, I think of the road on the way, that's on the way out to uh, Kingswood, the golf course in LaSalle. But when they were doing some, some work on the perimeter, they would have those reduced speed signs all along that stretch of the perimeter. And then on, that was on weekdays, but on weekends, they'd have those signs turned sure. around. Sure. Which at first was, I kind of felt like, am I allowed? Does that mean I can go 100? Um, or, or have vandals uh, struck and are they trying to <laughs> yeah, trap me, right? That's right. But <laughs> but the fact that it was every single sign down that whole stretch made me think, okay. Well, I, and and when, when it started happening again, I realized, yep, all right, this is clearly okay on weekends. Well, and I have, know I've seen in some jurisdictions that the fines are doubled and there's that caveat when workers are present, I don't know where I've seen that. If it's in North Dakota or Minnesota, uh, maybe uh, both. I don't know, Loren, but I know I've seen that sign over over my uh, travels. I'll tell you this. The only sign I did see that made me realize I was in a construction zone is I, ter- I crossed the perimeter, and I felt like it must have been the first day they did it. I was going south on St. Mary's, which, of course, then becomes Provincial Road 200. I crossed the perimeter, and I'm moseying along, and all of a sudden I see this person on the opposite side of the street, and I'm assuming they're with the group Wise Up Winnipeg or other, where they're waving a sign like, you're about to enter a construction zone. And then I pulled over put on my hazards, turned and looked like I was just in that construction zone because they were warning people coming north 
And so I thought, I, I the only sign I saw was the man waving frantically with his fake cardboard, you know, like his fake sign, but I didn't see all the other ones. And so, yes, I know we get busy. We have to pay more attention. But that to me is a sign of how h- hard it is to pull out the important signs when there's so much else going on around us. Yeah. If you, if you can drive past something and not notice it because you're daydreaming or whatever, then it's not good enough. Like it has to get your attention no matter what. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. What's something weird that scares you or has scared you in your life? We're giving away tickets for the just announced this morning concert. One night with the King, three Elvis champions in one night club region event center, May 4th. And Jackie says, one day coming out of McDonald's, I dropped my fries. Within seconds, there was what felt like 20 seagulls picking up my fries. I was so scared. I ran to my car and locked all the doors. This reminds me, Jackie, of a time, the time my family went to Florida. We were staying at a place called Cocoa Beach, uh, a couple hours outside of Orlando. We're walking along the beach and... There was not a seagull in sight, but we were, we just, I don't know why we, I think we had a piece of bread and my sister dropped one and then a couple of seagulls just magically appeared. And within like 90 seconds, there were 100 of them like hovering in front of us. And they, so we would throw a piece in the air and they were dive bombing each other and fighting in the air. So at first it was cool. It was like, where do they all come from? (laughs) And then we got out of there because we were kind of scared. Sidebar. We're not a family of ornithologists. I know that bread is not good for birds, but <laughs> I would argue that uh, seagulls invented uh, Facebook, uh, social media, based on their ability to spread that news very, very quickly. <laughs> uh, Peace Driving in Calgary was famous for their seagulls uh, up on 16th Ave. You go, you daren't drop a, a an onion ring or something tasty like that because you were doomed. Yeah. That seagulls it's like would they've come. got like a sniper glasses oh, on you, right? Yeah. Like they're out in the tree and they're like, yeah, yeah. it's down, it's down. Third and fifth. <laughs> get to third and fifth. Richard says, when I first moved out in my own home in my mid-20s, me and my girlfriend, uh, well, we just suffered the fear of being alone for the first few times, I think. Those creaks and bumps that the house makes that you're not accustomed to. The wind blowing outside, moving trees around, making noises, shadows that you're not certain what they are. Just takes a little getting used to living on your own. When my 10 years ago, when I bought a house with my then girlfriend, neither of us could sleep for like three days because it was just too quiet. I was like, what? We're used to sirens and street noise and we're, now we're hearing nothing it scared it scared us that's wild concrete building it's just a house just a oh a house in your house oh you're out in the suburbs yeah ah, okay sorry i missed that part of it do you want me to read marks here sure i was scared when my dad wasn't coming back for me it was around 1975 i was around 5 years old snowmobiling with my dad we had our own sleds he said wait here as he decided to go ahead and race his friend there is a satellite on my snowmobile. There, there, there I sat on my snowmobile. Yeah. Oh, there I sat. Thank you, Brett. Uh, not running. As I heard snowmobiles fade into the distance, being five, I'm worried he wasn't coming back. And a wild animal would come. I started crying. He did come back. And all was well. Yeah. I, w- I got locked in a bathroom in Essex, Ontario, when I was four or five years old. Restaurant bathroom. And uh, I couldn't get out. And I started freaking out. It felt like eternity. Honestly, it was probably 30 seconds. But I was just too dumb to figure out how to open the... Because clearly the door locks from the inside and I'd locked it and I hadn't figured out, couldn't figure out but how to open kid, it. you're a kid, right? But I was panicking. I still can... When I think about it, Loren, I can feel that terror that I felt yeah. in that moment. 
I think that's fair. Like, especially when you just don't know how you're going to get out. This happened to one of our kids this summer. It was like a, just a, a kind of shed bathroom at a campground. And of course we're there for a family event and, and didn't hear him. And you know, like, and it was, I think maybe it was two minutes, but man, like he, he to this day, this is just eight months ago, but the, the line is, I'm not going in there alone. <laughs> like, you don't know what that was like. And I was like, ah, buddy, it was just a couple of minutes. Nope. Like, I, it, it might have been. It might have been longer, but in his mind, that was terrifying. Terrifying. Jen is our winner. My parents, Jen says, used to have a cold room in the basement of their house where they stored vegetables and jams, canning, etc. I was terrified when the potatoes started to root and grow tentacles. I was convinced those potatoes were going to wrap their tentacles around me and pull me into the root cellar where I would never be found again. That sounds scary to me. I didn't know potatoes could do that. <laughs> With enough time. With enough time. <laughs> Jen, congratulations. You're going to see three Elvis champions in one night in one night in one night with the king in Club Region Event Center, May 4th. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Hal Anderson, the host of Connecting Winnipeg, joins us in our next segment to tell you what he has coming up. Just after 10 o'clock on 680 CJOB. Right now, though, if we want to talk about how if you have kids of any age, then you have no doubt had the conversation in your home with friends, with family, about their phones and the many, many apps that are on them. Yeah, the good, the bad, and of course, the ugly side of the internet and of social media. And, and you don't need to have kids to be asking questions about this. You might just have teens in your life and you think, how do you handle that? You might be a grandparent worrying about the use, phone usage in your grandkids' life and wondering how to tackle that. And out of the Canadian Centre for Child Protection just this week is a deeply concerning news that reports of online sexual luring targeting our kids are at never-before-seen levels. And so... The reports coming into cybertip.ca have grown from 220 tips in 2018 to more than 2,000 by the end of last year. That's an 815% increase. So for more, we're joined now by Catherine Tabak, Program Manager of cybertip.ca. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. We're going to get into the why. We might be seeing this in a moment, but I just want to, if you could, walk us through. I think no matter how many times we have this on air, we talk to police, we talk to cybertip.ca, and people might still wonder, what do you mean by luring? How is this happening? So can you give us an example of a typical call that you might get at cybertip.ca from a parent or child about an alluring attempt? Yeah, so uh, in a lot of cases, we have parents calling in, um, you know, in in regards to their 13, 14-year-old, and um, for whatever reason, they've intercepted communications between their child and someone who they believe is grooming their child. Um, in not all cases has the grooming process sort of escalated to sexual uh, commentary, uh, but certainly the communications are concerning. Um, and, you know, we've, we've heard from other parents where the situation has actually escalated to the point where uh, the adult has made plans to meet their child in person. Um, and so those are sort of at the extreme of cases. But um, typically what we see in, in luring incidents is that an adult is using technology in some capacity to gain access and communicate with a child for a sexual purpose. Catherine, I can't help but think about some of the stories we've heard over the last couple of years with regard to requests for 
explicit video uh, videos and or pictures from young people, and then those pictures or videos are, are used to essentially blackmail our kids into doing other things, doing things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah, uh, definitely, you know, the, the escalation of threats that we're seeing in some of these situations and the tactics that offenders are using to keep kids compliant in that incident is very alarming. And in terms of the sites that are out there, the, the specific apps, like are there specific sites or apps that are more involved in possible luring attempts than others, like more problematic ones? I mean, there's risk with all apps. I just want to put that out there. Um, but certainly in terms of what's being reported to the tip line, most commonly we're seeing Snapchat and Instagram as two two of the sort of main um platforms where we're seeing these communications occur. But we also know that offenders are using tactics to move kids from one app to the other to avoid detection. Um, So, for example, we'll see where they connect with kids on, let's say, Instagram, and then they ask the child to move those communications to Snapchat. Um, And, you know, part of the problem with that is that kids have this false, um, you know, thinking of that their communications and their videos and pictures that they're sharing are being deleted. And so it gives this false sense of security. Um, But those would be sort of the two main platforms that we're seeing in these types of incidents. Because if I understand this right, and I don't, I will admit to not being strong on the technology front, but I have kids who are entering this age where I need to be more mindful, Catherine, and so I'm trying to learn. But you talk about this 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 theory that the kids think that the message is being deleted because on Snapchat, isn't that the point? You make a video, it goes to the other person, and then it disappears after a certain period of time. But it doesn't mean it disappears forever. Am I getting that right? Well, and that's exactly it. You know, I think when when Snapchat first came out, that was sort of the intent behind that. Um, But certainly as the the platform continued to grow, now they they have different options. So, you know, there's sections like My Eyes Only, where kids are saving all of their sexual pictures and videos within there. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's, it's really just to be mindful that once you're sending something out, there really is no security of knowing that that information will not be spread. Um, and I think that's part of the conversation that parents need to have. Uh, I also want to emphasize, though, that I, I don't think that it's reasonable for us to continue down this path of putting all of the pressure on parents. We really need to start having the conversation and applying pressure for governments to regulate these platforms. Um, We have protections in place in the offline world to keep kids safe online that are not present in the online world. I can remember we had a conversation with an expert from, I think it was the the Ohio State University five, six years ago on this idea of allowing our kids on the internet, on their personal devices uh, before the age of 16 or 18 or 20, just, Everything is available. So do we have any sense or any clues that we could be looking for at home in terms of the the behavior of our kids that might give us a clue that perhaps they're going down a a wrong or ill-advised path with this stuff, Catherine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a great point. I think uh, some of the things that parents want to be mindful of is, you know, the number one thing is change in behavior, either in the school environment, at home, 
if you're finding them isolating themselves in their bedroom, um, you know, we would always encourage that devices are not allowed in, in places like bedrooms, bathrooms. They always stay in open areas. But if you see your child uh, secluding themselves, you know, friendships that are deteriorating, um, that, you know, people that were previously really important to that child, they're no longer connecting with. Those are some things that you want to keep uh, keep in mind. Um, or losing interest in, in things that they maybe had a large interest in beforehand, like sports or uh, any, like, artistic um, programs. Those are some of the sort of telltale signs that something might be going on. Should we, what, about, what about just cutting them off? Like, is that is that... A, hel- a helpful thing to just say to the kids, you get off of those, like, we don't like that app, get off of Instagram, get off of Snapchat, you're cut off. Is that can be so, a big counterproductive? You know, it, in the ideal world, I mean, I think we would all want to be able to do that. Um, but if I'm being completely honest, kids are smart. In most, in most uh, cases, kids are actually more tech savvy than their parents, and they will find a way to get on there. So I think the, the main focus should be about having these types of conversations as part of any regular conversation that you would have with your child in terms of safety, their personal safety, um, because it, it'll make them more likely to come to you if they do find themselves in an uncomfortable situation. I have admitted already, Catherine, to just not necessarily being a, a, a savvy myself on this. And it almost makes me wish much the same way we do so many other safety courses, you know, before you start to learn to drive a car. I feel like before someone gets a phone nowadays, you almost need to have a crash course in in not just understanding the apps and what they can do, but maybe even how to set some of those parental controls on the phones or on their Xboxes or YouTube or other so that you're monitoring a bit better what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's definitely some things that there's some steps that parents can take in the home, you know, uh, cutting Wi-Fi off at night, making sure that there's designated times that, that kids can access um, their devices, but uh, taking their devices away at night w- is a great example because oftentimes we are seeing these incidents occur in bedrooms late at night when parents are sleeping or parents are away from the home. Um, we need to start engaging the schools because we also see that some of these communications are occurring during school hours and that's where kids are accessing their devices. So bringing the schools on board. Um, and like I said, I think that we also need to shift our mindset in really looking at what can these platforms be doing more of to keep kids safe because they are creating these platforms to appeal to kids. And so they play a part in making sure that their platforms are safe for this age group. Yeah, they know what's going on. They in all likelihood have some measures that they could be taking to reduce, uh, maybe not completely prevent, but to reduce the amount of, of times, the amount of activity that's going on within their apps that, you know, they, they either turn a blind eye to or suggest is okay because of freedom of speech or freedom activity or whatever they hide behind here. But one of the big concerns here, and I'm listening to Loren suggest like sort of a crash course, is part of the problem here as well, Catherine, the fact that our kids are better at tech than we are. And so... It's parents that, that that need the crash course as much as anything about these things on how to set these parameters, how to turn off the Wi-Fi at night. Are there resources available for me as a parent to walk me through those things? 
Yes, absolutely. I know that there's a number of school divisions that do these sort of internet safety uh, courses in the evenings. You know, parents are, are encouraged to visit protectkidsonline.ca um, and they can contact our tip line if they have questions. You know, they hear the a new app that's coming out or if their child is, you know, talking about this new game or wanting to get a new game. Um, they can call into our tip line and we can give some information to them to help keep their kids safe or at least um, give them the information that they need to help reduce the um, the likelihood that their child will will be victimized online. Um, I, I think the biggest thing, honestly, is that we continue to have these conversations and we make them part of our regular dialogue. And um, it really needs to come from from different sort of aspects of life, like schools, um, you know, parents calling into us. Uh, we hear police, you know, doing call-outs in terms of parents really having those conversations with those kids. And so um, we know that they're being, you know, there's there's lessons that are being um, had in the school environment. But you're right, I think uh, engaging the parents a little bit more can definitely help on this side. Catherine Tabak, Program Manager of Cybertip.ca. Thank you very much for joining us to discuss this important topic. We appreciate it. Thank you. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We say hello to the host of Connecting Winnipeg, Hal Anderson. Hi, Hal. Good morning. Good morning. Lots coming up over the next couple of hours on Connecting Winnipeg. Of course, the big health care meeting in Ottawa. The first ministers will talk health care and funding health care. We're also looking again today at aging in place. A big show coming up. Do you mind if I uh, take a minute of my time here to share something specifically and especially for Loren? Is that all right with you? Of course. Um, okay. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. Yes, I do this. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> really just spoke on my behalf there, Brad. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> Brett's like, hell yeah, let's see it. Um, <laughs> anyhow, I do this uh, segment called Found Sound every once in a while, right, where I gather up interesting audio wow. and then I sort of compile it and do it. <laughs> I, I have to share this with you. I just found this. This is a YouTuber named Melinda, and Melinda took uh, puns from her yes. viewers on YouTube, and she took some of her own, and she did a song all about puns. It's not that long. Only a minute. Take a listen. I was wondering why the ball was getting bigger. Then it hit me. <laughs> I used to hate facial hair, but it grew on me. <laughs> I was planning on making a joke about sodium, but then I thought, nah, nobody will understand it. That one made me salty. <laughs> I put my grandma on speed dial. I called it Instagram. That musician has a problem. He's a troubled man. A fish <laughs> swam into a wall and said, Damn. Cause puns are just like paper. They're terrible. Oh, make it stop. They're unbearable. Let's get down to business to defeat the puns. <laughs> But puns are the devil's work, so I have none. Okay, I'll stop now, but before I go, why must this song punish me so? Punish! <laughs> Connecting Winnipeg, coming up right after the news at 10. The devil's work. <laughs> Never lament the existence of a good pun. Ever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was great. I appreciate that, Hal. Thank you. You're welcome.